Right now, Israel is ready to usher in a third temple, and even their own Messiah. But is this Bible prophecy being fulfilled, or is it something else? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for being with me. If you haven't subscribed yet, by the way, make sure you check out my website and do so there just in case. Again, platforms like to censor at the drop of a pin, so you never know. Uh, Danceoflife.com. You can sign up there for free email list. No hassle. I don't like to spam people. I just like to stay in touch. So without further ado, I want to jump into today's today's topic because we have a lot to cover. Um, This is part six of the End Times series that I'm doing. If you haven't seen any previous uh, episode in this series, then please go watch it. Go listen to it. We're doing this sequentially. I I try to review a little bit every time, but sometimes, especially in like today's episode where we have a lot to cover, um, I won't spend too much time on review. But with with that said, what we have covered are several significant things. So in the End Times uh, discussion. So first off, we looked at all the end times views, all the different types of views, and what's wrong with each of them. Then we looked at whether there's a rapture, and if so, is it pre-tribulational? Is it after the tribulation? When is it? And what we found out was that, well, there's no pre-trib rapture. Everything happens when Christ returns. We are meeting the Lord in the air, but it's the angels who take us up there, and that happens at the very end when Jesus returns. This is after the mark of the beast, after God's wrath is poured out, Everybody's still here. And so that's very important to remember because a lot of end times views rely on a pre-tribulational rapture. And we also looked at other more theologically important topics like whether Jesus is king right now or in the future. And the answer is that Jesus is king right now because he has to be king and priest at the same time. In order for that to happen, we know he's priest right now because he's interceding for everybody. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the gospel. So if he's priest, then he is also ruling spiritually, and that happened after the ascension. He is not going to be king. He's not a future king at some future millennial period, but rather he's already ruling as king. And if he's not ruling, then he can't be priest. And that's a serious problem. We also looked at whether Satan is bound now or in the future. And as you can guess, probably from everything else we've just talked about, Satan is bound in the past. He's already been bound And the kind of binding we're talking about is not total cessation of evil or total cessation of activity, because that's obvious. You look around the world and there's plenty of evil and nefarious practices, but Satan was prevented from specifically waging war, all-out war against Jesus and rallying armies against him, as well as preventing the message of the gospel from going out into the world. Now, With that said, what we also looked at is the possibility, and I believe it's a real possibility, that Satan has already been released. One look around the world, and, you know, today we're living a very deceptive time. People are being deceived hardcore, and I believe that Satan has been released. He is slowly gathering the world into a one-world religion, into a one-world worshiping system, where he will make his final deception, and then the battle against Christ when Christ returns. And so I believe we're already in that stage, which means that we're really in the 11th hour. I'm not saying I know when Jesus will return, but everything that we are studying, we're going to be looking at in this series, definitely points to the reality that we are in the 11th hour. And then finally, we looked uh, last week at whether the promises to Abraham were fulfilled or not. This is another important thing, and it's going to tie into today's episode where we're talking about Israel and the third temple. 
because a lot of people who subscribe to dispensationalism and futurism believe that a future millennial reign of Christ on the throne of David in Jerusalem physically for a thousand years is needed for certain promises to be fulfilled to Abraham. But this is not the case, as we clearly saw, as you hopefully saw in the last episode, or you listened to it, that all of the promises that God made to Abraham were fulfilled. The physical ones with the land promises were all fulfilled. And the ultimate promise, which is that all families of the earth will be blessed by Abraham, through Abraham, was fulfilled through the gospel, through Jesus. So all of that was fulfilled. And so where that leaves us at today is we're looking at something a little more concrete, something that's happening right now at the time of this episode. The third temple is planning to be rebuilt. People are rallying. They're getting the five red heifers to sacrifice them. They're training the priests again. They're building, you know, railways. All kinds of things are happening in the Middle East. And the question is, is this Bible prophecy being fulfilled or is it something else? And that's a really important question because this is a a very important matter. You know, futurism looks at future physical realities being fulfilled. Whereas historicism, or looking at the Bible prophecy throughout history through a spiritual lens, sees things very differently. And so my goal in this episode is to look at this topic with you, that the whole idea of this physical temple, is it really Bible prophecy or is it something else? And if it's something else, then we can speculate on what that something else might be. And there's some good good speculations that we'll offer. So today we're going to focus on a couple things. You know, premillennialism has a sharp focus on the third temple, on a physical third temple being rebuilt, because it believes that it's a sign of the end times for a third temple to be rebuilt. Premillennial dispensationalism specifically believes the Jews have a separate plan of salvation. So, of course, the third temple is essential to the end times from that perspective. Now, if we can prove that Israel is no longer the chosen people, and if we can prove that the third temple being rebuilt is a deception, is part of a very broad deception, then we can refute premillennialism and premillennial dispensationalism as well. Of course, the other episodes so far have been leading to this point, Premillennial dispensationalism is a deception, and we'll reiterate that many times throughout this series and in this episode. But so far, hopefully, you've gotten the point, and you've seen that everything that dispensationalism argues is just not substantiated by Scripture nor by logic. Jesus can't be king in the future because he has to be king now. Otherwise, we don't have the gospel. Therefore, Satan is bound. Abraham's promises were clearly fulfilled according to the testimony of Scripture that says all the promises were fulfilled. Not a single one was not fulfilled. That's what Scripture says. All right, so all these things add up to the same conclusion, but today we're focusing on the third temple. And, you know, we're going to look at, first we're going to look at several passages in Scripture that testify to this concept that we've echoed over and over, which is the physical, then the spiritual. Okay, we're going to look at how physical Israel was a type and shadow for the ultimate reality, which is the body of believers, the spiritual Israel, or the Israel of God, which we're going to get to in a future verse here in Galatians. But we're also going to look at how the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature, and that's not going to be fully exhausted in this episode. That's going to be in the next two episodes. We're going to look a little more at that. 
But this, the kingdom of God is spiritual nature. We have a spiritual king and we have a spiritual kingdom until the fulfillment of all things when Jesus returns. And of course, we're going to talk about the third temple. So the first thing on the list for today is how does the Old Testament shadows and types, how are those fulfilled in the New Testament? And there's so many examples. We're just going to go through them bit by bit here. So the first one is fleshly circumcision and how that was a symbol for being born again, the circumcision of the heart. So if we jump to scripture and we jump to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, is our first verse, it says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this is a spiritual reality that this is talking about. Now again, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, it says, For no one is a Jew Who's, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. And the last one in Galatians chapter 6, 15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So you have a lot of these examples, and this is just a few, guys, by the way. I'm, I'm just picking a, a few. There's so many more of these. I mean, even in the Old Testament, God himself refers to this this idea of an uncircumcised heart. So this is not necessarily just a New Testament idea, but it was fully revealed in the New Testament. The idea of circumcision as a physical reality was a type and shadow for softening the heart, getting rid of that heart of stone, getting a new heart, being a new creation in Christ, being born again. That's what the whole thing was about. But if you read the Bible completely literally, which is what dispensationalism does, it misses these poetic and beautiful and very important theologically, uh, very theologically important points. So we have to use discernment and be careful. Now, the next one is animal sacrifices, which ultimately all the sacrifices point to Jesus. In Hebrews 8, uh, verses 4 through 6, it says, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. This is what we talked about in, a lot, in one of the previous episodes. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They, served a cop, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So Jesus is the high priest. And of course, all those Old Testament realities like the sanctuary, we'll get into more of this in a future episode, but how the sanctuary typifies the plan of salvation. Jesus' ministry, the high priest typifies Jesus. The sacrifices typify Jesus. Each, each sacrifice, there's a lot of different sacrifices, but the main ones like the, the burnt offering, the guilt offering, the sin offering, you know, all these different types of offerings, the free will offering, peace offering, they each showed some aspect of Jesus's ministry. They all kind of point to Jesus some in some way. And this is very important because all these things were types and shadows so that when Jesus came onto the scene, everybody would understand and say, oh, that's who he is. You needed all those thousands of years of context and, and rules and, and shadows so that when the Messiah was born and came into the world, all that context would be understood. So the context was just there for the Messiah. And that's really important to understand, that these physical things 
constantly we're just pointing to spiritual realities. Now again in Hebrews chapter 10, which is a couple chapters later, we see a little more of this. Christ sacrificed once for all. For since the law has but a shadow, this is verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, again, it's that idea of shadows, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. There's those offerings we talked about. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will he have been sanctified, will we have been sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And Hebrews in general, you know, is, is such a great book because it, it's, it's a hall of typology. There's so much typology and, and prefigurement in Hebrews where it connects, because it's written to the Hebrews. It's written to people who were on the fence, who were Jews on the fence and weren't sure about the Messiah. And it's like, look, this is the Messiah. Here's the proof. And, and here's how he fulfilled all these Old Testament shadows. So Hebrews is a hall of typology. It's very, very powerful text for studying typology. But all these sacrifices they pointed to Christ ultimately, his his ultimate sacrifice. And by the way, this is another proof for Christ's divinity. If the blood of bulls and goats, what does that mean that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins? Well, th- what's happening is a created being, doesn't matter what power level or whatever else, a created being has a limited amount that it can atone for because it's it's created. It's it's a living thing and it dies. But an uncreated being, and there's only one, and that's God, if he gives his blood, that blood is life. So the only way that atonement works is that Jesus has to be God. He can't be a created being like the way the Mormons believe or the way the Muslims believe or anybody else who denies the deity of Christ. Christ cannot be a created being. He is God. That's the only way the atonement can work. But moving on, you know, so we have fleshly circumcision, animal sacrifices. We look at birth and just the physical act of being born and how that became a spiritual new birth. If we look in John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 23, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So this idea of being born again is very much established in Scripture. In fact, we're told that if we're we're not born again, we can't see the kingdom of God. So this idea of physical birth is seen as a shadow and prefigurement for the spiritual birth, the one that leads to eternal life, the true birth, right? 
and that's through Jesus Christ. And we look at, again, the next topic would be physical warfare into spiritual warfare. You know, they had a lot of wars and physical things in the Old Testament that they warred against and oppressions like Egypt. Egypt was the, you know, figure of power enslaving the Israelites. And you had other people like the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And throughout history, you know, there was all kinds of wars and oppression. But in the New Testament, we see that physical warfare really is just a symptom of spiritual warfare, of a larger, you know, universal conflict between good and evil that shows up in the physical sense. But spiritual warfare is the true reality, and all those things pointed to that. And we know from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the famous verse that probably most people know, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And of course, other verses confirm this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Again, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So, what are we taking from this? We're taking, first off, that the real reality is spiritual. The things that are unseen are the ones that are true. The things that are seen are the ones that lead you astray. Throughout the Bible, there is a constant warning not to judge according to how things look. Throughout the Bible, from the very beginning, when Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was, you know, lovely to the eyes and would make you wise, right? All the way through the New Testament, there are countless examples and warnings that you shouldn't judge according to how things look. But when your eyes are on the physical world, you are snared into thinking in a physical way and ignore the spiritual realities and spiritual things that are so important for your faith. This is the danger with a physical futurist eschatology that looks at physical things. But we have a couple more to go here. Earthly high priest, right? The Old Testament had an earthly high priest into a spiritual high priest, heavenly high priest. We know that from Hebrews 8. We, we just looked at that, but I'll review it just in a second here. In verse 1, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, which by the way, if he's seated at the right hand, remember that that's when he became king as well. Verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to our, to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. And again, this is a reminder because he couldn't be a physical priest because he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, since there are priests who offer according to the law. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So we have a heavenly high priest, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the being at the right hand, by the way, 
is also associated to a ruling position. Again, he has to be priest and king at the same time. So this idea that Jesus is going to reign in the future as king is nonsense. It's not true. I used to believe that, and thank goodness that my eyes were opened. I, I really did believe that, but I didn't consult scripture enough. And when I did, I realized that I was in error. We also have an earthly priesthood. So speaking of earthly priest and heavenly priest, the earthly priesthood, which was symbol, symbolized in the Levitical priesthood, turned into a spiritual priesthood and spiritual sacrifices, right? We become living sacrifices. That's what scripture says. Our bodies are living sacrifices to the Lord when we're born again. We become vessels of his will, priests, right? And let's take a look at what Scripture says about that. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Take note of the language here. To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. Which, here's another proof text for predestination, by the way. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to believers. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What a beautiful verse. Verse 10, once you were not a, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's interesting. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we were all destined for wrath, but through Jesus, through being born again, we've become living sacrifices in a royal priesthood, a people of God's own. We are the chosen people. The believers in Christ are the chosen people. That is the spiritual Israel. Now, all this fulfills what was spoken in Exodus, where Egypt, as a physical reality, represents a spiritual reality that we're being freed from. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 through 6, It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, I will, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. These are the words that Peter quoted in his letter. He's appropriating the realities that happened in the Old Testament with being freed from physical slavery to, in the chosen people to uh, the body of believers who are freed from sin, which is the ultimate slavery. And, of course, being born again and becoming living sacrifices, being a chosen people, and all those other things. But of course, there's other verses like this too. And again, these are just a couple of examples. In Hebrews chapter 13, we go back to Hebrews verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So sacrifice in this sense is what you say, your praise to the Lord. 
you're giving thanks. You're, you're acknowledging the things he's done for you. Those are sacrifices of praise. Spiritual things, not physical things. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. All of the Old Testament realities were there to prefigure and portray a future reality, a dynamic and beautiful and deep and intimate relationship with an invisible God. And of course, Jesus will return and we'll be able to see him face to face. But until then, we have the access to God anywhere we go. We can pray anywhere, anytime. We can offer living sacrifices through our bodies. We are vessels of his will. We offer sacrifices of praise and worship. This is the ultimate spiritual reality. It's not limited by physical things. And this is what it was all pointing to in the Old Testament. And again, talking about the chosen people, if we look at Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29, which again, we read previously, but let's reiterate it. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So who is the peop- who are the people who are the circumcision? Isn't that interesting? That entire idea of circumcision is being appropriated to the people who worship by the Spirit of God and in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You don't put trust in your flesh. You don't rely on worldly things. You rely on the Spirit. You trust in Christ every day. That's who the circumcision is. That's who the circumcised are. It's the spiritually circumcised. It's not a physical reality. So now with all this said, we have a, f- a few more to, to take a look at, but I want to look at something called the Israel of God. And this is in Galatians chapter 6, verse uh, 15 through 16. So I'll read the verse and we'll jump into some commentary. But for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We read this previously. But the next verse goes in is for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, this is a very interesting phrase, the Israel of God. So the question is, what does it mean? And the the point is this, in the church fathers, in the Reformation, historically, traditionally, all the main theologians believed and taught that, same thing that the apostles taught, which we'll get into a little bit later, but they believed that Israel, as in quote-unquote Israel, the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, was the body of believers. The physical Israel was a type and shadow for the future reality of a chosen people that God would have for himself. Now, that chosen people still exists, but it's not the Jews, it's not the Israelites, well, there are no more Israelites, but it's not the state of Israel. It's not a genetic lineage. It is the people who believe in Jesus Christ. It is the body of true believers who God has chosen to save and reveal himself to. That's who the chosen people are. But I want to take a look at a few articles that are pretty useful. So if we jump into 
this first one. It's called The Israel of God by Michael Marlowe. And this documents what a lot of early church fathers and reformers believed about this verse, Galatians 6, verse 15, or 16, the Israel of God. And it starts with Justin Martyr. He's one of the one of the early church fathers. This is what he says. Jesus Christ is the new law and the new covenant and the expectation of those who out of every people wait for the good things of God. For the true spiritual Israel and the descendants of Judah, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, who in uncircumcision was approved and blessed by God on account of his faith and called the father of many nations, are we who have been led to God through his crucified Christ. So the true spiritual Israel is we who have been led to God through Jesus. John Chrysostom, another figure in the early church, for they who pursue these things shall enjoy peace and amity and may probably be called the name of Israel. So the people who pursue God's laws and who follow Jesus, while they who hold contrary sentiments, although they be descended from him and bear his appellation, have yet fallen away from all these things, both the relationship and the name itself. This is what John Chrysostom believed. But it is their power to be true Israelites who keep this rule, who desist from the old ways and follow after grace. So the true Israelites, who are they? Are they people who are descendants of people from Judah? No, they're people who follow grace. Martin Luther on Galatians 6 verse 16. Paul adds the words upon the Israel of God. He distinguishes this Israel from the Israel after the flesh. Just as in 1 Corinthians 10, 18, he speaks of those who are the Israel of the flesh, not the Israel of God. Therefore, peace is upon Gentiles and Jews, provided that they go by the rule of faith and the spirit. Now, he wrote this in 1519. Later in 1535, one of his lectures, he says, Upon the Israel of God, here Paul attacks the false apostles and the Jews who boasted about their fathers, their election, the laws, etc., and, and all those other status de, um, descriptors. It is as though he was saying, The Israel of God are not the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, but those who, with Abraham, the believer, believe in the promises of God now disclosed in Christ, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. John Calvin, Galatians 6.16, Upon the Israel of God, this is an indirect ridicule of the vain boasting of the false apostles who vaunted of being the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh. What are the Zionist Israel, state of Israel doing today? Same thing. Judaism is boasting of their descendants in Abraham, just like the Pharisees did. There are two classes who bear this name, a pretend Israel, which appears to be so in the sight of men, and the Israel of God. Circumcision was a disguise before men, but regeneration is a truth before God. Beautiful words. In a word, he gives the appellation of the Israel of God to those whom he formerly denominated the children of Abraham by faith. That's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And thus includes all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, who were united into one church. And in uh, O. Palmer Robinson on the Israel of God, the recognition of a distinctive people who are the recipients of God's redemptive blessings and yet who have, se- and yet who have a separate existence apart from the church of Jesus Christ creates insuperable theological problems. In other words, this is what dispensationalism does, having two plans of salvation for two different types of people. Jesus Christ has only one body and only one bride. This is exactly what we talked about last episode. There's not two brides. One people that he claims is his own, which is the true Israel of God. This 
one people is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Amen. Amen. That's that's what it's really all about. So the Israel of God is a spiritual reality. It's not there is no there is no chosen race of people that are physically you know different because of their lineage and they have a special plan of salvation. Do you realize actually how how much nonsense that is for so many reasons? It's certainly against what the Bible says that there's one body and Christ is the head of the body, there's one bride. It's certainly against that, but it just doesn't make any sense now does it? That your physical reality would determine your salvation status. That's not how things work. God is a God of spiritual things, of spiritual truths. He's not dependent upon physical things. Now, we we looked at we looked at overall what the views were for church fathers, some reformers. I want to look again at what the traditional perspective is of the reformed view, which was in the Reformation, of this idea of the church in Israel. So if we jump to another article here by Cornelius Venema, this is in Ligonier Ministries. This is the church in Israel, the issue. This is a pretty good article, but I'm going to read to you something here called the traditional reform view. One people of God. Contrary to dispensationalism's sharp demarcation between God's two peoples, Israel and the church, historic reform theology insists on the unity of God's redemptive program throughout history. When Adam, the covenant head and representative of the human race, fell into sin, all human beings as his posterity became liable to condemnation and death. By virtue of Adam's sin and its implications for the entire human race, all people became subject to the curse of the law and heirs of a sinfully corrupt nature. According to the traditional Reformed interpretation of Scripture, God initiated the covenant of grace after the fall in order to restore his chosen people to communion and fellowship with himself. While the covenant of grace is administered diversely throughout the course of history of redemption, it remains one in substance from the time of its formal ratification with Abraham until the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. In all the various administrations of the covenant of grace, God redeems his people through faith in Jesus Christ, the one mediator of the covenant of grace, through whom believers receive the gift of eternal life and restored communion with the living God. This is what we talked about last time. The seed promised Abraham in the covenant of grace is Jesus Christ, the true Israel, and all who through faith are united to him and thus heirs of the covenant promises. In the Reformed understanding of the history of redemption, there is no ultimate separation between Israel and the church. The promise God made to Abraham in the formal ratification of the covenant of grace, namely that he would be the father of many nations and that his seed, in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, exactly what we mentioned in the last episode. The seed promised to Abraham in the covenant of grace is Jesus Christ, the true Israel, and all who through faith united to him and thus heirs of the covenant promises. In the Reformed view, the gospel of Jesus Christ directly fulfills the promises of the covenant of grace for all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles. Israel and the church are not two distinct peoples. Rather, the church is the true Israel of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is what we just read in Peter. And the point is this. Israel, as a chosen people in the Old Testament, were needed to create the types and shadows for the Messiah and for a people to bring forth the Messiah. 
But once the Messiah has come forward and introduced the fulfillment of all things, which is grace, there's no more need for those things anymore because the, the, the law has had a purpose, but the law was there to point us to grace. The temple sacrifices were there to point us to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. The priesthood was there to point us to the priesthood that we have as believers in communion with God and how we offer spiritual sacrifices. All these things were, were just physical things that were there to paint future, more interesting and more powerful spiritual realities. That's what it's all about. So the traditional view, which is the reform view from the Reformation, and the Reformation, remember, people went back to appreciating the Bible and the Bible first. Sola fide, only faith. Faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, scripture alone, right? All those things were getting back to the basics. And these are the same views that the church fathers had. The church fathers did not believe in a dispensational theory where Israel still had a separate plan of salvation. I mean, it's, you know, Judaism today, which again is a religion that was based in rebellion to Christianity, Judaism didn't get formalized until 800 AD when the Talmud was written. And there's some interesting things we'll quote from the Talmud in this episode, by the way. But Judaism says that you're saved, that you're the chosen people based on your genetic lineage. You're not saved by grace. You're saved by your genetic lineage. You're saved by all these physical things that you do. You know, you're chosen based on your bloodline. Does that sound like something that God would allow? With after the cross, specifically, after the cross, after grace? I don't think so. So it's nonsense. We can't align with something that is so antichrist. There's no individual accountability. There's only group accountability. Are you a Jew or are you not a Jew? Are you circumcised or any, all these physical fleshly things? Rather than in Christianity where you have accountability, you have to have a relationship with God yourself. It's not what bloodline you come from. It's not, you know, whether you're circumcised or not. It's what is the matter? What is the state of your heart, right? What's inside and how are you related to, to the Lord? And that's the most important thing because you could be circumcised and you could, you know, wear your yarmulke and you know, all these different things and do all these prayers and do all these external works. But your heart, just like the Pharisees, could be a whitewashed tomb. And that's that's the thing we have to remember, that physical things are not the true things. But continuing with Old Testament types that were fulfilled in the New Testament, we have just a few. We have an earthly nation that created a spiritual nation. If we look again in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, this verse keeps popping up about a royal priesthood. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is so important. We as believers, as the body of believers, as the church, as the temple, all these things are synonymous. The body of Christ, the church, the kingdom, they're all, the, they're all talking about the same thing. It is the group of believers united through their faith in Jesus who are also a holy nation. Now, does, that, does that nation have any borders or boundaries? No, that's the thing. It is completely decentralized. And it's also completely centralized with God. It's brilliant. It's not a physical reality. It's a spiritual reality. It's a holy nation without borders because the borders and the territory is the hearts of the believers. And that's a spiritual reality that was fulfilled from the Old Testament, which was a holy nation physically, 
that became a spiritual nation spiritually through a spiritual kingdom. It's really quite beautiful if you if you just are honest with what Scripture says. But again, earthly kingdom to spiritual kingdom. If you look in John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're going to get more into this in, in a future episode here very shortly. But a king, we received a kingdom. Was, is that in the future or in the past tense? This is in the past tense. This was written a few years after the crucifixion. Okay, so what does that tell you? That means we're already in the kingdom. It's not a few, the kingdom is now. It's a spiritual reality that's unfolding. And of course, it'll have a fulfillment when Christ returns. It'll be the fulfillment of all things, but the kingdom is already now. Revelation chapter verse one, chapter one, verse six, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So he's made us priests. Who is us? The believers, the body of believers, not Jews only, the body of believers. And the kingdom and the priests are synonymous. The, the group of priests, the holy nation, the kingdom, it's all the same thing. The church, the body of believers, the body of Christ, the temple, as you'll soon see, it's all the same thing. And of course, speaking of the temple, the physical temple, this is where we're going to get into it now with this whole physical temple thing being rebuilt. The physical temple is a spiritual temple. In Hebrews 8, chapters, chapter 8, verse 1 through 2, Again, talking about Jesus as the high priest. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. So the true tent is compared with the shadow, which was the physical temple. Later in Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So again, physical to the spiritual. Physical first, then the spiritual. Now, I want to touch on this point, which is really important as we finish this section out about what the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament as physical to spiritual. The apostles believed that the temple was a spiritual reality. And I can prove it to you. Paul believed it. And we'll look at a couple verses from his letters. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So when you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, there's that phrase, household of God. That's also another one that's synonymous. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's all spiritual language in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, there's so much in this. First off, this is all spiritual language. If you're taking note, he's using, you know, building, constructing language and using it in a spiritual context. Christ is the cornerstone. We're being built up into a temple. 
Now, this is very important because he's also saying that we, the body of Christ, is being built into the temple that's a dwelling place for God. And that's echoed in a very common, or I should say a very popular verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, a lot of people use this verse to say, well, you know, don't eat toxic foods. You know, your body's a temple. I don't disagree in, in a sense that we should treat our bodies as a gift from God. Obviously, it's the most brilliant machine ever made. But the mean, the correct meaning of this verse is not referring to a singular body. Again, it's echoing what you just heard in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 19 through 22, where he's using body and you to signify the entire body of believers. The word you in the original language in this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, is plural. So he says, or do you not know that your body, you as in you all, like, or do y'all not know that y'all body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, of course, that's not what it says, but that if we were to say you all or (laughs) y'all, if you're from the South, I'm not from the South, but you all is what it really is trying to say in English. In Greek, it's plural, you. So the point is that he's saying you as the body of believers are the temple. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to a group of believers. That's what he's he's speaking through. Now, this is echoed again in earlier in Corinthians, in the first Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 10 through 13. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. Again, things that are referring to building, but used in a spiritual context. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will be, become manifest, for the day will disclose it, that's the judgment day, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. So think of, you know, think of all these people building on top of the gospel message. And again, when we say building, what are we talking about? We're talking about physical buildings happening? No, we're talking about spiritual realities, adding things to the gospel. You know, the the Catholic idols and praying to saints and worshiping Mary, all the things that are happening in religion, even today with the prosperity gospel, adding things that aren't there to justify a man-centered gospel. It's, It's all adding to the building, to the temple, and putting idols in the temple, in all this in a spiritual sense, of course, and profaning the temple with, with these things. Now, on that note, I want to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, and we can see that same point being echoed there with idols. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now, remember the context. The temple, according to Paul, is the group of believers. For we are the temple of the living God. There you go. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the temple of God is the body of believers. Now, if if you're bringing things into the temple, into the church, into the kingdom that don't belong there, the prosperity gospel, praying to saints, worshiping Mary, saving yourself by works, 
indulgences, whatever, right? All these things that have happened over the last 2,000 years. You're profaning the temple. You're bringing idols into the temple because the temple is a spiritual reality, according to Paul. Now, John believed the same thing. If we look at a couple of things that John wrote, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is Jesus speaking. Make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Do you think that that's, he's going to turn you into a stone pillar and you're just going to stand there for eternity? No, this is spiritual language. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. John chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, in this sense, the idea that the body is a temple applies because it applies to Jesus. Jesus' body is the temple. And after the resurrection, with new believers coming in, we came into the body of Christ. Jesus' body is the temple. Jesus is God. He's omnipresent. So the kingdom is everywhere. Do you see how that works? It's so beautiful. But it's all spiritual. It's not physical. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. The woman and the dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, there's a whole section here about this, the woman who gives birth to the male child, one to rule all nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's very clear that this woman, it's the first off, it's not Mary, okay? It's Israel. It is the, it, the body of believers that brings forth the Messiah. But then after the child was caught up to God, the woman flees in the wilderness. It's the same woman. This is, this is the big point here. The woman who gives birth is Israel. Okay? And there's a whole study on this. We're not going to get into it here right now because it's very in-depth. But the woman is Israel. The 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's some actually very interesting uh, stuff, some interesting studies on the astronomical things that were happening during Jesus' birth and how this passage, Revelation 12, actually predicts his birth and it was in 3 BC. But we'll, we'll be talking about that in a future episode. But anyway, I just thought I'd side note that. But the woman, this is the important thing to get from this, the woman who gives birth and the woman who flees are the same woman. doesn't change. The woman who flees is the church because this, ha- this happens after the child is caught up to heaven, meaning after the ascension. So the woman who was Israel, the physical type, is the same woman, the new Israel, this Israel of God, the spiritual kingdom, the spiritual Israel, who is running from persecution. And we'll talk about specific time periods. That's the 1260-year time period, not the 1260-day time period that the woman is fleeing persecution. There's a whole study on this we'll be getting into once we get into Revelation and the books of Daniel. But for the time being, just realize that these things are not changing. The same woman who gave birth is the one who ran from persecution. What do you make of that? That means that the body of believers, during the the chosen one, when Israel was the chosen one, they were the chosen nation, 
they had people who were largely disobedient, but they had a remnant of Israel who always believed and had faith in God. That was the chosen people. That was the true chosen people of God. They were the people that God had chosen for himself. And that hasn't changed. The people who believe in Jesus, who have faith, it's still the chosen people. It's been the same woman, the same bride throughout all of history. You don't have one bride, then two brides, and all this nonsense that comes with dispensationalism. But Peter also believed that the temple was spiritual. So we have Paul, John, and now Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Living stone, living pillar, same language. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There again, we have spiritual priesthood compared to the house of God, compared to living stones, all these things, the temple, the body of Christ, the kingdom, the church, it's all the same thing. That's what I hope you understand. You start understanding is it's all the same thing. Now compare this to the Old Testament where the Messiah will build the temple of the Lord through his sacrifice and mediation. Now let's look in Zechariah chapter 6, 12 through 13, where it says, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. We know who that is. That's Jesus. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Verse 13, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now we looked about we looked at this verse at the Jesus is King episode. Jews still think that there need to be two messiahs because they don't understand that these two realities, that him ruling on the throne and there shall be a priest on his throne are talking about the same person. But again, if that's the case, then being a priest and ruling happens at the same time. You cannot have just priest, and you cannot have just king. Dispensationalism and futurism say that, well, Jesus is going to be king in the future. Well, if that's the case, then he can't be priest right now, and therefore there's no gospel. But that is besides the point. The important part with this verse, in verse 12, where it says he'll build the temple of the Lord, that was fulfilled. As you can see, all the writers of the New Testament believed that the temple was a spiritual reality. They recognized these things, that Jesus built the temple, which is a spiritual reality, through his sacrifice, a temple that couldn't be destroyed, a, a kingdom that couldn't be invaded and conquered and destroyed. He's a spiritual king with a spiritual kingdom, and he built that through his sacrifice, which fulfilled this prophecy. This is not talking about the Messiah building a third physical temple where there's going to be sacrifices again. That's nonsense. That's completely contradictory to the gospel. Now, again, if we look in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 10, we knew that Messiah would build a temple. It says, Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. So, Again, it's talking about building up walls and and this language of building a temple, building a physical thing, but it's actually relating to a spiritual reality. Physical temples can be destroyed. Spiritual temples can never be destroyed. 
And we know that Messiah was going to build the temple, but the temple, what people didn't realize, was his spiritual reality. It was the church. That's what Christ built up through his sacrifice. He's the cornerstone, remember. And if you remember from Matthew 16, verse 18, very popular verse, Christ is the rock. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Catholics use this as a proof that Peter is the rock, but is that really the truth? Throughout Scripture, Christ is always compared to the rock. When the rock was struck in the desert to bear water, that was a type and shadow of Jesus being struck on the cross, and blood and water poured out and gushed out for the forgiveness of sins. Life poured out. Throughout Throughout the, test, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus is compared to the rock. He's called the rock. He's called the cornerstone. So if we take all of those things in context and we come back to this verse, it is impossible that Peter is the rock. Peter is dead, waiting to be resurrected, like everybody else who's died. And everybody's going to be resurrected, but all the believers in Christ will be resurrected to life. And Peter's dead. Jesus is not. He's in heaven ruling. He is the rock that the kingdom is built on, that the church is built on, and that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. So, again, Peter, John, Paul, they all believed in a spiritual reality with the temple. All the apostles agreed that Israel was a type and shadow for the spiritual reality of the church. The church fathers and the reformers held the same view. They were traditionalists. They believed that everything was fulfilled through Christ and revealed. All the physical things became spiritual things. Or I should say they were re- the spiritual things were revealed finally because they were being pointed to by the physical things in the past. The kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. The kingdom is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the temple. All these things are synonymous. They believed that Christ was the fulfillment of the types and shadows in the Old Testament. All of them and they believe that the new temple is a spiritual thing. It's, it's Jesus' body. It's the body of Christ, the body of believers, i.e. the church. Now, I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about anything physical. I'm talking about when I say the church, I say the group of believers, of genuine believers, the fellowship of believers who hold the faith of Jesus Christ and are true born-again believers. That's who the church is. So now the big million-dollar question, if, if all of this is true, then why are premillennials so hung up on the third temple, on the third temple being rebuilt in Israel? If there's no pre-tribulation rapture, let's put this all together. If Christ is already reigning as king, because he has to be, if the promises to Abraham have already been fulfilled, if the body of believers is the temple, if all of this is just spiritual realities, that the New Testament is talking about, then what is this about? What is this third temple thing about? And I want to remind you of two things. Actually, I want to remind you of one thing, but we're going to look at two sources. And that's that futurism, which is the idea of a, a future, projecting all this end time stuff in the future. Like, we don't have to deal with it right now. It's a future thing. The Antichrist is all future. And it's all literal. It's all physical. This is a Jesuit invention. And we're going to read a couple things for you couple good articles. First one's called The Rise and Spread of Futurism, Jesuit Futurism. And uh, this is the Catholic Encounter 
The Catholic Counter-Reformation Futurism The Jesuits were commissioned by the Pope to develop a new interpretation of Scripture that would counteract the Protestant application of the Bible's prophecies regarding the Antichrist to the Roman Catholic Church. All the Reformers' studied studies pointed the finger directly at the Roman Catholic Church as the Antichrist power described in Daniel as the little horn. Francisco Ribera was a Jesuit in the 1500s. A brilliant Jesuit priest and doctor of theology from Spain answered the papacy's call. Like Martin Luther, Francisco Ribera also read by candlelight the prophecies about the Antichrist, the little horn, the man of sin, the beast of revelation, and so on. He then developed the doctrine of futurism. His explanation was that the prophecies apply only to a single sinister man who will arise up at the end of time. Rome quickly adopted this viewpoint as the church's official position on the Antichrist. And so this this goes on. This is actually, you know, it's, it's a longer article. It's a good article. But the point is this. Futurism is developed by the Jesuits as a counter-reformation move to counter and take attention and pressure off the papacy, which is indeed the Antichrist power. But this is another book. We looked at this in the first episode, the H.C. Martin, The Origin of Dispensational Futurism and its Entry into Protestant Christianity. Says the same thing. Today, many Protestants have departed from the Christian interpretation of the prophecies in the book of Revelation and many other passages of the Word of God. Church history has not left us in ignorance concerning the false dispensational interpretation of the book of Revelation. Preterists declared that the Antichrist power of Scripture had already come and gone, being fulfilled in the Roman emperors Vesparian and Titus, who attacked the Jews, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and slaughtered over a million people in 70 AD. The other school, known as the Futurists, said that this great power must be in the future, teaching that it would not appear until the second advent of Jesus Christ. The originator of this second erroneous thesis was a Spanish Jesuit priest, Francisco Ribera. As he attempted to advance the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation, Ribera was embarrassed by the persistent Protestant identification of the papacy with the Antichrist. To counter this, he revived a futurist interpretation of the book of Revelation, where he placed all but the first three chapters in the future. Antichrist was restored to a person and an individual ruler, not the Pope and the papacy, a power, political power, who would arise in the future. Antichrist would reign for three and a half literally years, and his teaching was embellished with a rebuilding of a physical temple at Jerusalem, revival of the Levitical laws and sacrifices, plus various Jewish aspects, in addition to the wholly unfulfilled persecution of the church. This futuristic interpretation was popularized by Cardinal Bellarmine and became widely accepted with Romanism, within Romanism. So where is this going? Well, Futurism, this whole idea of a third temple being a biblical prophecy being unveiled, and oh my gosh, Bible prophecy because of what's happening in Israel. This is not Bible prophecy. This is futurism. It is a fleshly, worldly, physical way of looking at reality that was created and made popular just a few hundred years ago during the Reformation to take pressure and attention. It was a propaganda move by the Roman Catholic Church, to take pressure and attention off the papacy, which indeed fulfills the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. We're going to get into that very deeply and very profoundly in this series, I hope, but we're not going to do that right now. The point is, where do these beliefs come from, these fleshly beliefs? Because obviously they don't come from the Bible. You saw very clearly that the apostles and 
The people who wrote the Bible, they believed in a spiritual reality. Everything that was physical was there to point to a spiritual reality. Not more physical things, more temples being rebuilt and all these things. It's, it, these are false things that were misinterpretations of Scripture. One of them is the true interpretation. One of them is a satanic deception because Satan is always trying to put your attention on the flesh, on the physical things in the world, so that you ignore the spiritual realm, the spiritual things that are happening, and you do not have discernment. Now, I want to talk about Zionism, but before I do that really quick, a word of warning, Matthew 24, verse 24, what does that tell us? For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Could the third temple the physical reality being put together right now, be used to create the biggest deception of all time? Are they committing to the false prophecy that they created to divert attention off themselves? Are they committing to fulfilling that prophecy and fooling the entire world into a false millennial kingdom, into maybe a false Christ, a false peace? Who knows what it's going to be? I don't know, certainly. There's a lot of options, but we know that either way, it's not good. Now, I want to talk about Zionism, and Zionism is, is, the, is the thing that's pushing me, the, it's the force behind this third temple, at least one of the forces. Zionism is basically Jewish nationalism, Jewish supremacy, really. It's a very racist doctrine, and unfortunately, there are Christian Zionists. We're going to look at that, but the origin of Zionism comes from Theodore Herzl, who was a Jew in the 19th century, late 19th century. But I have an interesting article to show you that probably most people don't realize. And that is Theodore Herzl, audience with Pope Pius X in 1904. Huh. That's interesting. Let's read this. On January, excuse me, on January 26, 1904, Theodore Herzl had an audience with Pope Pius X in the Vatican to seek his support for the Zionist effort to establish a Jewish state in Palestine. Huh. Bet you didn't know that, did you? He recorded his account of the meeting in his diary. I wonder what they talked about. I wonder how that played in part with Hitler being praised by the papacy at the time. That There's a famous quote, I forget what it is now, I didn't pull it up, but one of the cardinals, or maybe even the pope at the time, said, God gave us Hitler. And Hitler was very much a fan of the Jesuits, very much a fan of the Vatican. In fact, his whole Third Reich was a you know, a fascist, almost like a, a neo-Catholic, you know, Romanesque, religio-political type of empire that he wanted to build. There's a lot of connections between him and the Vatican, uh, interestingly enough. And Hitler wanted to get the Jews into their own place, into their own territory. He wanted to kick the Jews out of Europe. And we're not going to get into the whole Holocaust thing, but ultimately there was a lot of movement to create this physical state of Israel. And as you can see, the papacy was very closely tied to that. Now that's not very common knowledge, but again, this is why you have to have discernment. You have to see the political things at play because if you're chasing physical things, if you're looking after physical temples and physical realities, you're going to miss the powers behind the scenes, the snakes that are slithering around 
in the shadows, moving the chess pieces and rearranging themselves. The papacy has had a hand in creating this whole state of Israel thing. Now, we're going to look at some other things, but just keep that in mind. Um, there's an article that says, it's talking about Christians United for Israel. It's John Hagee. Now, John Hagee is an evangelical, but he's a Christian Zionist. So it says this, April 1st, 2018. This is from 20, a couple years ago. John Hagee is an evangelical pastor based in San Antonio, Texas, having served in the ministry for more than five decades. Hagee leads a church with 20,000 plus active members. He is a Christian Zionist who believes that the Bible commands, boy, that's a strong word, all believing Christians to support the state of Israel and return of the Jewish people to their ancestral homeland. Really? I would I would love to see, Mr. John Hagee, where the Bible commands us to support the state of Israel. The state of Israel wasn't made until 1948. So where does the Bible command us to support the state of Israel? Because it doesn't. And if you, again, if you listen to my previous episode on the promises made to Abraham, everything has been fulfilled. There is no return to the land of Canaan. The empire that the Israelites had with Solomon fulfilled all the land promises. They were very prosperous. But it was a, it was a bilateral covenant, meaning two-way. You had to do something, and God does something. Grace, through Jesus, is a unilateral covenant. God is doing the work. You do not do the work. But in the Old Testament, it was a bilateral covenant. What that means is all those promises, all those land benefits were conditional. Conditional on what? Conditional on them obeying. What did the Israelites do? They whored after other gods. They, Solomon ended up worshiping demons because his many wives basically seduced him into it. And so they were taken captive into Babylon. They were enslaved. They were persecuted. They had all kinds of problems. Then the Romans came. I mean, it was just constant strife. So the point is this, this whole Christian Zionism thing, it's a deception. It is a major deception. And it has a purpose to play, which we'll get into. Look at this next article. Sanhedrin mints silver half shekel with images, sorry for the ad here, images of Trump and Cyrus. Look at this, a coin of Trump and Cyrus, who basically ordered the building of the first temple or um, the second temple. And they're on a coin. Sanhedrin means the silver half shekel. Now, this is a very profound thing, and I'll tell you why. Because the half shekel, there's a whole theology behind the half shekel. First off, the Sanhedrin were, were are descendants of people who rejected Jesus. Now ask yourself this, if the people who helped to crucify Christ and rejected him and mocked him and blasphemed him, those that same group of people is alive and well today, and they mint a coin with your face on it. Now Trump claims to be a Christian. How does that work, I wonder? I really wonder how he can reconcile that. Of course he'll find a way to reconcile it, because Trump isn't really a Christian, but who knows? Maybe his heart will change at some point in time. Maybe not. The point is this. The people who crucified Christ minted this coin. Now, what is what is the theology behind the half shekel? Well, first off, the half shekel was used as redemption money 
in the Old Testament. And it was used to form the pillars. They would be melted down and would form the pillars of the temple. Now, according to Revelation 3.12, which we just read earlier, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So what is this applying? Again, it's the physical to the spiritual. All that physical stuff that was happening with the half shekel in the old temple system, that was, that was a, a physical type and shadow to point to a spiritual reality, which is through Christ. He will make you a temple. He will make you a pillar in the temple of his God. That is a spiritual reality of being born again and being part of the kingdom, part of the temple, that you'll be a pillar, you'll be solid because you're being conformed to the image of Christ, physical to the spiritual. Now, there's a story about this that's very interesting that also ties into this half shekel idea. And this is in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, where they deal with the temple tax. Verse 24, when they came to the Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Now, what's so profound about this story? Well, when he says the sons are free, the kings of the earth, who do they take taxes from? Do they take it from the people who are basically slaves or do they take it from their sons? Well, no, not their sons. Their sons are free from from that burden. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because we are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. We are brothers with each other and with Christ. And we are free. Do you see how that works? It's a spiritual reality. Through grace, we are saved. We are sons of God in that sense. We are redeemed in a much more significant way than any financial redemption as it was in the Old Testament. People would pay the half shekel to redeem somebody, and that half shekel was used for the uh, physical temple pillars. But now in the new covenant, the covenant of grace, we are redeemed from sin by the priceless blood of Jesus. And we are made temple, we are made pillars in the temple. These are all spiritual things. So now compare all of this to this half shekel, this mockery of this reality. It's bringing people back into physical realities. Wow, look at the silver shekel with Trump's head on it and Cyrus and everybody's frothing at the mouth to get their silver shekel. When in reality, this has nothing to do with any of that. It's all about being born again. The half shekel was a type and shadow for the redemption that we have through Jesus. Do you see how Satan is distracting people through these shiny objects, just like they people were distracted in the Garden of Eden. Throughout the entire Bible, it's always about not judging with your eyes. And this is no different. Now, there's another article I want to show you. Fulfillment of Theology and the Future of Christian-Jewish Relations. Now, this is a very lengthy article, but it says something very poignant. According to Gershom Shloem, the Messianic idea is totally different in Judaism and in Christianity. Judaism, in all its forms and manifestations, pay attention to this, 
has always maintained a concept of redemption as an event which takes place publicly on the stage of history and within the community. In other words, a physical thing. In contrast, Christianity conceives of redemption as an, ad, as an event in the spiritual and unseen realm, an event in which reflect, is reflected in the soul, in the private world of each individual, and which affects an inner transformation which need not correspond to anything outside. So Jewish idea of redemption is physical. It's, it's a physical reality coming to pass with physical things. And if you remember the apostles, when they, when they first encountered Jesus and they were first going on their mission with him, they, wanted, they expected him to be the conquering Messiah, to come in with a worldly kingdom and to be worshipped as a king with a physical throne, the throne of David. They didn't realize all that was spiritual. Remember when they tried to make him king and Jesus walked away? Because he didn't want to be a physical king for them. He wanted them to have, being a king and following a king is about obedience. Israel rejected Christ, basically rejected Jesus as king in the Old Testament. That's why the physical kings were put in place, because they rejected a spiritual king. So God gave them physical kings to show them how much they're lacking, while at the same time building the context and pretext for the future Messiah. But the apostles were the same way. They, they were Jews. They expected a physical reality, and they got a spiritual one instead, which is much better. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 through 24, it says, For the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. The Jews are always seeking after signs, and it hasn't changed since the Old Testament. Today, the Jews still look for physical fulfillment with a physical temple. They see two messiahs instead of one because they haven't realized that the suffering and the conquering messiah are the same person. And so this is, this is the point. You know, when you believe in dispensationalism, you're aligning with Judaism. Now, here's another article. Let me see if I can find this really quick. This is kind of a funny article from Israel 365 News. Messianic Trump-Cyrus connection revealed through Hebrew numerology and Bible codes. Look at all this stuff. I'm not even going to read this. This is just the headline. You can check it out. I'll put a, a resource for it. But why did I bring this up? Again, it's, it's making something out of nothing. It's drawing your attention to physical things. All this stuff about numerology... And Gematria, Gematria is Jewish mysticism. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit or the prophets or anybody say that we need to be counting the numbers of letters and adding them up and determining secret meanings, secret knowledge. This is Gnosticism. But again, this is being used as, oh my gosh, the, the prophecies are being fulfilled. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on. This is a false prophecy being engineered to make the biggest deception possible. You know, in, in the Bible, it says that the temple in Jerusalem, that area is going to be remaining desolate. Luke chapter 13, verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken or left to you desolate. And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 24, verse 2, But he answered them, You said... 
You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is Jesus foretelling of the destruction of the temple. So did Jesus ever say that there would be another temple being rebuilt? Did he ever prophesy such a thing? The answer is no. The temple spoken about in the Old Testament is the spiritual temple that Christ came to build through his sacrifice. So here's another thing from the Talmud, which is, I said, we're going to look into, which is very interesting that parallels all these things. And we're going to get back into it, but um, here we go. This is in Yoma 39a. And you can look this up. I'll put a, this is the Talmud, very antichrist book, but either way, something interesting that we can find. The sages taught during all 40 years that Shimon Hatzadik served as high priest, the lot for God arose in the right hand. From then onward, sometimes it rose in the right hand and sometimes in the left hand. Furthermore, during, i got to move this stupid highlighter out of the way. Furthermore, during his tenure as high priest, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat was sent to Azazel and was sent to Azazel turned white, indicating that the sins of the people had been forgiven as it is written. Though your sins be as crimson, they shall be white as snow. From then onward, it sometimes turned white and sometimes it did not turn white. Furthermore, the western lamp of the candelabrum would been, would burn continuously as a sign that God's presence rested upon the nation. From then onward, it sometimes burned and sometimes it went out. So there's another thing I want to read here, but really quick. There, there was a tradition with the Day of Atonement where they would, you had, you know, the, the scapegoat, basically had two goats. One of them was sacrificed and one of them, all the, the priests put all the sins of the people on the goat and he let them go into the wilderness. Now, both of these goats represent the sacrifice of Christ. Christ was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem and he bore the sins of everybody. He was made to be sin, who he who knew no sin. And he was sacrificed too, obviously. So both goats represent, again, all the sacrifices point to Jesus. But there's, you know, rabbinic traditions and oral law that basically they were tying this scarlet scarf around the goat and then it would turn white, which was sort of like a, a physical sign. Again, the Jews were always looking after physical signs. They also cast lots. And if it landed in the right hand, then that was seen as a favorable thing, that the people's sins were forgiven on the Day of Atonement. If it landed on the left hand, not a good thing. So you had these various signs that they would use to say, oh, did God forgive us or not? Again, physical things. So with that in mind, look at this. This is the thing I wanted to read next. Let's see if I can find it here. I have to... Okay. Yoma 39b. During the tenure of Shimon Hatzadik, the lot for God always arose in the high priest's right hand. After his death, it occurred only occasionally. Here it is. But during the 40 years prior to the destruction of the second temple, the lot for God did not arise in the high priest's right hand at all. At all. So too, the strip of crimson wool that was tied to the head of the goat that was sent to Azazel did not turn white. And the westernmost lamp of the candelabrum did not burn continually. Now, you tell me, what does that mean? We know that Jesus was crucified around AD 31. That's about 40 years between his crucifixion and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now you tell me, is that a sign, <laughs> is that a sign from God or not? I mean, basically, 
all these signs that they were relying on for the Day of Atonement, for the sins to be forgiven, all 40 years, every year, the signs would be like, no, you're not forgiven because you rejected the Messiah, basically. The 40 years after, from Jesus' crucifixion to the destruction of the temple, this is recording in the, recorded in the Talmud, all these traditions with the Day of Atonement, where the scarf was turning red to white, uh, where you know the lot was landing on the right hand and so on, where the candle was burning continuously, all of them were negated, basically saying, listen, you're not forgiven unless you accept the Messiah. Why? Because you rejected the Messiah. You're still trying to find your way into heaven through your own works and through sacrifices, which those things were pointing to the Messiah. You don't get it. Your eyes are still on the physical, not the spiritual. So what does that tell you? That tells you that they're not the chosen people anymore. This whole idea of a physical chosen people of Israel is a lie. The chosen people are people who believe in God, and in this case, Jesus Christ, because now we have the full revelation of Scripture. It was always been by faith. Faith in God has always been the measure. But if we're in the new covenant now, and you reject to believe in Jesus, then you don't believe in God. So the Jews of today reject the New Testament, obviously. They reject Jesus as the Messiah. And that's because they've been deceived. The people who founded Judaism are the Pharisees who rejected Jesus because of their own selfish needs and desires. The Jews who converted were the ones who continued the tradition of the scriptures into Christianity. Now, of course, Christianity has had a lot of problems enter into it, but Christianity as a practice, biblical Christianity, is the continuation of the scriptures. A final thing to leave you with is the parable of the tenants. This is in Matthew 21, verse 43. I'm just going to read the last part of this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. That's the conclusion from the parable of the tenants. What do you think the parable of the tenants is about? It's about Israel, physical Israel, and how their time is up. And we're going to reinforce this with the 70 weeks of Daniel prophecy. But Israel as a chosen nation their time was up a few years after the crucifixion. The moment that Stephen was stoned in 34 AD and all the apostles dispersed and the gospel went out to the Gentiles, the the Jews had their time under the sun as the chosen people. Now the gospel is going out to the nations. The only chosen people are going to be the ones who choose to believe in Christ. Now, of course, I don't believe that you can choose willy-nilly. God has to open your eyes to enable you to choose. But the point is that People who have faith in Jesus, those are the chosen people. The whole physical reality, that ended right after the crucifixion, as the Talmud testifies and as Scripture testifies. That's something that it seems that they agree on. Of course, there's not a lot of things in the Talmud that agree with Scripture, but nevertheless, that is very interesting, I thought. So the conclusion to all this, before we wrap it up, the sacrificial system has come to an end. Okay, there's no rebuilding of the third temple prophesied. There's there, Jesus is not coming back through the gate again. He's not going to rule on the physical throne of David because he's already ruling. The, the whole throne of David thing is a spiritual reality. God's people, meaning the, the chosen people, the people who believe in Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, we should not be looking for physical things and physical realities. 
We should not be looking at physical Israel and monitoring what happens at Israel because this little state of Israel, that's the most important part of the world. That's a distraction. We should be studying the Bible just like the reformers did and they realized who the real Antichrist power is on the earth. And once you realize that, then you know what to start watching. Rather than watching for the carrot being dangled in front of your nose and distracting you with all this physical stuff. So what's the end game with all this? This is the question. What is the end game? Well, the end game is this. It's most likely one world religion, a false peace, a world system, and maybe even a false Christ. Remember the, the second century Didac, where the Christians of that time believed very sincerely that Satan would masquerade as Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus warned about this in Matthew 24, that false Christ would come and the deception would be so great that even the elect could be fooled if it were possible. And the Didac, obviously it's not an inspired text, but it's a historical text and it's very valuable. They take that to the next level and they believe that the it would be a, a false Christ. Jesus, the, the devil would masquerade as Jesus Christ. So that's what's at stake here. And this is this is very dangerous. Now let's look at a couple articles that would support this point. If we look at this one, this first one, it says, 12 times Pope Francis has openly promoted a one world religion or a new world order. I'm not going to read these. Again, these are just articles you can look up. Now here's another one. This is... Um, a painting called God's Mountain. And this is a vision of the Temple Mount, a study project of the Interfaith Encounter Association, whatever that's all about. This is a painting, if you're listening to this episode, it's just a painting. You can look these up on the resources I'm going to post in the description of this episode. But this is a painting of, you know, the, the future temple, the Al-Aska Mosque. There's a rainbow in between. it. Everybody's having fun, listening to music. Here's a description. It is a normal future day on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jews, Muslims, and Christians entering through the Gate of Mercy are waiting for services to begin, respectively, at the Temple, at the Dome of the Rock, and the Alaska Mosque, and at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Friends of all three religions and from around the world greet each other, and some gather around an informal group of musicians from the three faiths who are playing together. The Temple Mount has shed the remnants of destruction and conflict left by the Roman Empire, and is once again a joyous place in which all worship in the respective holy buildings, but bearing witness to the same one God, creator of all. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think there's one that Jerusalem, or that Judaism and Islam believe in the same God. I don't believe in the same God as Islam, and Islam doesn't believe in the same God that I do. I do not believe in Allah. Muslims believe that Jesus never died on the cross. That's what they're taught. Muslims don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he was God on earth. Certainly Jews don't. So how can we believe in the same God? It's it's totally preposterous. And you're painting this idyllic picture of, oh, you know, it shed the remnants of destruction and conflict left by the Roman Empire. Well, didn't Jesus say that it would just remain desolate? So... What are you, either you're contradicting Jesus or you're basing it off information that I don't know what you're basing it off of. Either way, it's not true. Look at this next one. A Muslim looking forward to the third temple. Some Muslim leaders are encouraged by good relations with the Jews and by Israeli sovereignty in Jerusalem. 
So this is, this is already happening. The following is a press release from Turkish religious figure Adnan Oktar, who recently po- hosted a number of Israeli Jewish officials during Ramadan and very interestingly expressed his anticipation for the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. Huh. That's interesting. What's that all about? They spoke about Mashiach. Chief rabbi of Iran, other religious figures meet with the leader of Iran. This is earlier this year in February 2023. It's a picture of them. Now look at this guy right here. It doesn't say who he is, but this is a cardinal. Isn't that interesting? You you don't think the Vatican has their hand to play in this? Of course they do. Let me read a little bit of this one. Chief rabbi of Tehran, Rabbi Yehuda, Jurami, and other religious figures in the Islamic Republic met on Monday with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi. The meeting focused on the topic of the Islamic Revolution and its achievements for all religions. <laughs> yeah, right. Raisi spoke about Jews in Israel, emphasizing the lack of connection between the two. All believers in the Abrahamic religions, there it goes again with the whole Abrahamic thing, with the belief in God's promise to save man and actualize justice and fight oppression. This is a common belief among all religions, including the Abrahamic religion. Those who oppress the downtrodden people in Palestine in the name of Jews have nothing to do with the Jewish religion and the followers of the prophet Moses today. Those who oppress people in any part of the world in the name of Christianity have nothing to do with Christianity because all the prophets hated oppression. So suddenly oppression is the is the enemy, not sin that you can be delivered from only through one man, and that name is Jesus Christ. It's oppression. It's social justice. This is the Vatican speaking. If you've heard Pope Francis and his social justice gospel, this is the same thing. It's delivering man with a worldly solution and it's worldly pursuits, worldly solutions to worldly problems. It's sidetracking your attention to physical things that are happening rather than the internal battle, the spiritual warfare that we're in with the battle of sin. Do you, see, do you see the sleight of hand that's happening? And do you see how they're all uniting in the same direction with this whole Abrahamic family house? Now look at this. This is on TBN. The Abrahamic, the Abraham Accords. Witness history unfold, prophecy fulfilled, and hope arise. It's got this inspiring picture of Netanyahu and Trump and, you know, Turkey, I believe, and all these other leaders. And it's just... Prophecy fulfilled, really? What prophecy are, are we talking about? Are we talking about biblical prophecy? Or are we talking about a false prophecy that they're engineering to fool the masses so that when the moment comes and the uniting of all religion comes and maybe there's going to be even a false Christ that will appear, that people will fall for that deception and believe that the millennial kingdom is here and all this this golden age is finally here. And we can worship Jesus, but it's not going to be Jesus. It'll be a false Christ. And people will not know the difference because they don't read the Bible. They don't have discernment. They trust the teachings of men instead of the teachings of God. What about the Abrahamic family house? That opened this year. If you've been in there, I've seen a couple of videos of their inside. They feel like Literally, that verse of the whitewashed tombs comes to my mind. Look nice on the outside. Inside, they literally feel like catacombs. So look it up if you want to. Look at some of the videos inside. People have been videoing inside. They look totally dead. I would never go there, not if you paid me. 
No way. I mean, it's just, it is just weird. But a couple other things. Look, Catholics supported, the Catholic Church supported Zionism. The Pope met with Theodore Herschel, and I'm sure what they talked about was creating a state of Israel. Why? Why is that so important? Why do you think that Zionism is so important to the papacy? Because they created the futurist interpretation of Scripture. So Zionism and having a state of Israel and having a third temple is the papacy's little gem. They need the Zionists around. So they work a deal with them. They need the Zionists around so that the future physical prophecy can be fulfilled and people can be distracted. They need that to get the attention off of the actual truth, which is that the papacy is the Antichrist. So they cut a deal. Now, we'll, we'll talk about this in a very future episode, but the papacy also created Islam, believe it or not. Islam got out of control, and now they're coming back into union with the papacy through Mary, through diplomacy, through political moves of all kinds, through the Abrahamic family house. But the papacy created Islam. So do you see how this works? This is a dialectic, problem-reaction-solution. The, pre- the papacy created Islam, the papacy supported Zionism. Now you have these two opposing factions that are creating tension in the Middle East constantly, which demands what? Demands peace. Who's going to be the one that will bring peace? The Pope is going to bring the the one, the the great bridge builder, Pontifex Maximus. That's what that means, the, the bridge builder. Now, that's also a spiritual term, the bridge between heaven and earth, which again, the Pope is the one that has that title. It's inherited from Babylon, and it's a blasphemous title because only Jesus Christ is the bridge between heaven and earth. But the Pope will be the one to broker the peace deal. And as you can see, it's all about having this peace and unity and everybody worship the same God. But is that really what's going on? You know, Jesuits are fulfilling their false futuristic prophecy. They are the ones behind this prophecy being fulfilled. They can control and push physical realities. But of course, God is letting them do that. So that the people who need to be deceived will be deceived and the people who wake up will wake up. So I hope this wakes you up. I hope that this wakes you up to the truth. I hope this wakes you up to the truth of the counter-reformation, that this whole Israel third temple thing. First off, Israel is not the chosen people. Israel is the Israel of God, is the people who choose to believe in Jesus. It's not a denomination. It's not a particular building. It's the people, it's the body of believers. And the temple has always been the body of believers. That's what the apostles believe. That's what the church fathers believe. That's what the reformers believe. Anybody who is aligned with the word of God, that's what they believed. But that has changed because the physical interpretation has come into the play. And it's come into the play for a very specific reason, to distract attention from the true antichrist power, which is the papacy. We'll be getting more into that. But look, dispensationalism and even premillennialism is Judaism. It supports Judaism. It's Antichrist. All the things that it supports are completely Antichrist. Now, I was a believer in premillennialism. I didn't think I was being Antichrist. But if you believe that Jesus isn't king, you're diminishing his role. If you believe that he's not king, then he doesn't, then he's not priest either. So there's no gospel. You see, that's Antichrist. If you believe that the Jews have a separate plan of salvation, you're anti-gospel. Because There is only one plan of salvation. There's not two brides for Christ. There's one bride for Christ. And so many other things, but it's all antichrist. And postmillennialism too. Postmillennialism, which is the idea that 
we're going to keep improving, and then after a golden age, Jesus will show up. This is exactly what the Jews believe. They, they see a physical redemption rather than the spiritual reality that happens in the heart. Remember the uncircumcised heart versus the circumcised heart. It's the spiritual reality of being born again into a new life and being part of the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, through that new awareness and that new lifestyle and that new being a new creation. It's not seeing great technology come to play and diseases being cured and, you know, prosperity and all this stuff. This is a worldly salvation. And this is what's on the horizon. A false golden age of light, of false light. It's going to be the false light of Lucifer. And we have to have major discernment. Judaism is an antichrist religion. It always looks for fleshly things. And if we align with that, then, well, that's not Christianity anymore. The truth has always been spiritual in nature. So this whole third temple thing, it's a deception. It's a dialectic, meaning problem-reaction-solution. It's, it's a tension point to leverage so that they can either bring about a false peace of some kind that will justify unifying the world's religions and giving power to the papacy, or, even worse, introducing a false Christ. Right, so this whole false Messiah that they're going to bring along, which will probably happen sometime soon, it will probably spark war in the Middle East, which again will spark a need for peace. I don't know. At the time of this video, there's a lot of things happening. So who knows? If you're in the future and you're listening to this, maybe you already have found out. But the point is this. Don't let it distract you from the takeover that's happening behind the scenes, where the, the papacy is uniting the world's religions as we speak under climate change, under social justice, with the Abrahamic family house, the Protestants are coming back in relationship with the papacy. We're going to talk about all this. It's so much. It is so much. That's why this series has to be so many episodes. But ultimately, it's to give you discernment. You know, this is about fulfilling a false prophecy so they can fool the world. Remember, we're going to meet Jesus in the air. They can't fake that. That is a being caught up. We will be caught up, but that's going to be at the end, after the mark of the beast, after this great deception. So don't be fooled. Remember what Jesus said. If, if they say he's in the inner rooms, don't listen to them. If, he's, if they say he's in the desert, don't listen to them. Many false Christs will arise. The physical Israel was a type and shadow for the church and the kingdom, which is a spiritual reality. And we're going to wrap that up in the next two episodes. We're going to look at the kingdom of God. We're going to look at the millennial kingdom. We're going to look at the church. And again, not any physical denomination. I don't really believe in that. I just believe in the body of believers, which is what the Bible says. We're all, all of us who believe in Christ, we're part of the body of Christ. Now, of course, you know, everybody's got certain beliefs and certain things are a challenge. If you deny the deity of Christ, then you're not part of the body of Christ. Because you deny Jesus as God, and therefore, if you deny the Son, you deny the Father, you deny the Gospel. So we have to be careful with certain beliefs. But if you believe in Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus, you're part of the body of Christ. You're part of the church. That's what we'll look at in the next few episodes. I hope this has been eye-opening. There's so much more to talk about. There really is. But I hope you have discernment in the weeks and months and years to come. Do not be fooled. Learn Bible prophecy and don't obsess over it, but learn enough to realize the spiritual things and not be distracted by these little carrots. And instead of focusing on the Middle East so much, 
focus on the word and study it. So I hope this has been a blessing for you. I hope you've learned something. We'll see you next time. Until then, God bless.